it's episode 363 of This Is Whole Life, and this is the Great Question 2023 series, and this is number two in the series by Ken Wentmore. And I just felt like I had to put Ken Wentmore because we're going to have to break these up a little bit because we have a surprise coming next week. That's true. And But we did we? Did we I we think, did. We talked about it in did church. Did we talk about it? We yeah. Did. I'm wondering if we talked about it last week at the end of the podcast. I kind of feel like we made fun of him. I think we did. I think we made fun of him last week. And of course he wasn't I think here. that motivated him because he's he's got quite the uh, sermon planned. Oh, really? Yeah. He oh, told yeah. me, he's he ready told, to go. He told me about 25 minutes ago that it wasn't Friday yet. Yeah, him, don't, don't listen to him. He's, I asked him how the sermon prep was going, and he's like, well, it's not Friday. <laughs> so, oh, there you go. Don't listen well, to him. He's... He has to turn in his sermon to Melanie Wynn Thursday. Uh, Yep. All right. There we go. (laughs) Well, before we get started, I wanted to give a quick shout out to Mariana Parente, who is a faithful listener. Shout out. And she came up to me. uh, She caught me in the uh, staff workroom on Sabbath, and she's like, hey, you missed my question. (laughs) And I was like, oh, no. Where did you leave it? She's like, in the chat. I happened to be home, and I asked the question. And I was like, okay, sorry, you know, sorry about that. We, we never want to miss a question. And she's like, well, you guys answered it anyway. <laughs> so it wasn't a huge issue, but you missed my question. And so um, I apologize. And if you have put a question in the chat, I don't think I'll miss an email unless it, you know, by chance goes to the spam filter. Um, the text messages, I've never heard of it, that I've missed one there. But if we've missed your question, just go ahead and send another one. Just or, meet Randy in the workroom. Or, or just <laughs> grab Randy. Yeah. That's and, it. Uh, when you see me going through the lobby, just, you know, maybe. And if you have it written down, maybe that's a good thing too. put on a little post-it note and we'll put it with the show notes so we don't forget it. <laughs> so this week, our question was, is it ever okay to do bad things for God? No. All right. That's great. Next week, it's John Monday. And uh, I just, I couldn't resist because Ken did that and said in my first one word sermon, no. (laughs) And, you know, maybe it's just the dad joke in me, but I was like, that's, it worked. Yeah. It worked. Made me laugh. This feels almost like we delved back into, and by the comments, I feel like others felt like we kind of Almost like this was a continuation of last week's message. Yeah, it did did kind of feel that way, didn't it? In a way, like we kind of got back into that feeling. And I got an email, or the four of us got an email from someone that listened to last week's show and was just pointing out, however, just as a point of reference that, you know, when we think about how we view things like miracles and how we view how people's suffering and whether that be the spiritual, the physical, and and to not forget that, and I don't know that we addressed it specifically, but people in marginalized communities, how much they suffer just by being a part of that community, which, you know, that's, uh, that's a tough place to be and something that uh, I resonated with. And uh, we had a nice email exchange during the week. And so just wanted to make sure we put that out there and make sure that as we're thinking about these issues, that we're also including those people that we would, you know, maybe it's not our community, but it's certainly one we would want to know and be able to share in their journey, however that is and however we can do it. So I thought that was a just a nice point and thank you for the email. I enjoyed the response and the back and forth. It was very, very, it was rewarding for me personally. So we will move on from there. Kyla made the best bent over person in history. Oh, that's not, I. I thought uh, who who was first service? It was uh, uh, Ruby or Ruby. Sylvia or Sylvia. Was it Sylvia? Uh, Sylvia. I Sylvia. Think it was Sylvia. Yeah. yeah. 
Uh, she, she did a good she did job. Great. Too. Did I did like really the good. fact that she was not as compliant as you know, like okay, I think I'm done here. And <laughs> that was like, fun. Just like no, no. My daughter knew. She yeah. she knew what. <laughs> <laughs> like don't get up. And apparently, that wasn't the only one word sermon she's ever heard. So. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> maybe maybe, Touché. maybe well played, two or three. Well maybe two or three. Yeah, nothing like welcoming your uh, your children <laughs> home, home from college by making them get up front and be a sermon illustration for you. Uh, and just just for anybody out there, my kids, I would not do that to them if I didn't know they were okay with it. It's like week one, welcome home. <laughs> no, I, I enjoyed though the story that you based this on in, in Luke 13 with the woman who was bent over at the waist for 18, 18 years. years. <laughs> and all It was just uncomfortable watching Kyla or Sylvia do it for like three to five minutes. Like seriously, it was like really uncomfortable and if you felt like it was uncomfortable down and watching it, for me up front, it felt uncomfortable because I knew what I was planning on doing, but it still felt even more uncomfortable than I thought it was going to feel. Just And just to think that somebody was for 18 years like mm-hmm. that, and there and there are still people in the world probably today mm-hmm. who, who have suffered that way mm-hmm. that long. Was it, Melanie, did you tell Ken about the idea that that person would have to identify people yeah, by their Melanie. shoes? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Melanie t- yeah, Melanie told me that. That was heartbreaking. I mean, when you said that, it was like, <clears throat> I choked up a little bit. Like, if that was your existence, that everybody that you met, you might learn to recognize, like, I know when Melanie's coming down the hall, I've got her cadence <laughs> down. If my door's open, it's like, hey, Melanie's at you? And it's like, I don't know why I'm asking. I know it's her. <laughs> or, you know, someone's voice, you get to, to know that. But especially for strangers, if you're out in the market or if you're having to do some other chore that people that you come and interact with, you would yeah. like buy their yeah. shoes. And the, after seeing the visual and then having that on top of it, I was like, wow, this really was I mean, it's easy to pass off. It wasn't like, you know, the lady who was bleeding for, what was it, 15 years? 12 years. 12, 12 years. I mean, that sure. seems like a horrific way to have to live your life as mm-hmm. well. But the, And this is a story that I don't think we hear that often, except for the you hypocrites part. <laughs> I, I feel like otherwise we don't really delve too much into that part of the story. And yet that part of the story was actually my favorite part, just to, to stop and think about where people are with whatever they might have. And a lot of times it's not as obvious as the person being, you know, punched over at the waist and not being able to, I mean, in today's world, I think we would probably hopefully have some kind of a, we have chiropractors, we have surgeons, we have things that may be able to alleviate that. But then thinking back to the email also making sure that we have the empathy for the things that we can't see. But yeah, I think that's worth thinking about for a minute there, Randy, because there are still a lot of afflictions, <laughs> um, a lot of things that 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 people suffer from um, that don't have that don't have a cure. Yeah, um, and that and they it brings them pain um, from the community. You know that woman who walked into the synagogue every week. I mean, think about the courage it must have taken for that woman to walk into the synagogue every week, knowing that every, you know, probably every single person in that place was judging her and mm-hmm. saying, I wonder what she did. I wonder what her parents did. They must have done, they did something to make God punish her this way. And, um, and yet to still faithfully show up, still faithfully worship, I think that it's worth thinking about that, that, that it's, uh, that there are people 
to this day that show up with to church that are judged and what the courage it takes to show up to church when you've got a bunch of people looking at you thinking, well, this person's a sinner. This person is God's must be upset with them for something or, you know, and so I think it's one of the reasons why we have whole life. And one of the reasons why we do things the way that we do them here is because we want everybody to know their love, cared about and belong. Um, we don't want our community to be the source of that suffering. Exactly. Mm. Yeah. The idea that, you know, you brought out about pity versus compassion. And I thought it was very interesting that a lot of times, I mean, I think everybody knows the difference between pity versus compassion, but I also don't think we always realize when we're not using one versus the other, when it's really pity that seems like compassion that we're talking. And, you know, those are when the cringeworthy statements usually escape us when you, and maybe not always on purpose, like it's a bad thing, but sometimes it seems like the, like the pity comes out in when, while you're trying to be compassionate, or maybe it's, you're, you're trying to step or tread lightly. So you don't say something that would come across as pity, even though it's maybe part of compassion. Where do you see that line? Because I think that's one that we get tripped up where it maybe keeps us from engaging because it's like, I do not want them to think that I'm pitying them. And then if you have to say, I'm not pitying you, you're pitying me. <laughs> that seems like a dangerous minefield to navigate sometimes. Yeah, I think that's that's the hard part because a lot of times we don't want help from somebody else if we believe that it's coming yeah. from pity. Sure. As a lot, of, a lot of times we rather just stay bent over, so to speak, uh, than to have to deal with somebody's pity because it, in a sense, it has not just, uh, you know, a, a bit of uh, judgment with it, um, but it also has some condescending. And you, you know, she couldn't see who was looking yeah. at her with those kind of thoughts that Ken was talking about. Well, you can feel them though, can't you? Yeah. You don't yeah. actually have to look at people sometimes just to feel it, just to feel the... Yeah, I and mean, you wonder what she must have seen because uh, she did uh, She did allow Jesus. I mean, she, that was not coming from pity. It was coming from compassion for her. So, but it is hard. It's a really hard thing when we have lived that way for a long time to not think of somebody's actions or help or a desire to change the way you know things are for us as not pity. If you've been that way that long, what would you assume that something in others would all of a sudden change? I mean, what can they and what can they do for you? I mean, in that kind of a at least in a medical sense, I mean, obviously you could befriend somebody and you could find out if there's ways you can help or be of service to them. But in the end, I mean, if you're her, again, you're staring at the same, the same feet and hearing the same voices. And I think sometimes it's almost like when you lose for her, it might even be like losing a sense. I mean, because your vision is at the ground, maybe those keen, those ears become more keen and that's, and that's part of what she had to deal with. But I liked how Ken, you said the, when he said daughter, you know, this mm -hmm. all-inclusive statement. And, you know, there's things that every so often you hear and they just trigger. Like I think, Ken, I think you mentioned this last week. It just makes me love Jesus more when something like this happens. And that's one of those statements where 
you kind of, I think secretly we put ourselves in those situations and go, man, I wish Jesus would come and say, son, you know, to me or daughter yeah. to me. And that's probably a very, you know, in a sense, a very real piece of her estrangement or part of her feeling of, I don't fit with anybody. And because it would probably, it might've been a likely story for her family to have said, well, <laughs> we don't really want to be a part of this because then we're going to get blamed for it. And we were yeah. good. There was nothing wrong with us. So she's probably dealing with it on her own maybe. And and so maybe Jesus calling your daughter, just like Jesus, by the way, calls the uh, the woman who you just mentioned who was uh, bleeding for 12, 12 years, years yeah. calls her daughter too. Yeah. It makes me wonder how, how, what her relationship was with the community after that. Yeah. Because, um, where she could look him in the eye. Right. Yeah. But I, and Jeff, I'm sure you know more about this than I do, but I've read the different studies about how when you have someone in the family who is sick or who is, for example, um, an alcoholic who then tries to make changes and recover, the family has sort of built up around that dynamic of that one person who's sick and they almost won't allow that person to change. So it makes me wonder if she actually was able to sort of enter the society and culture she was already in as who she was or if she was she had been known all of her life as the woman bent over and then known for the rest of her life as the person who used to be bent over mm. or if they actually allowed her to live mm. into this this new identity or way of being I haven't, I haven't thought it would be uncomfortable for her maybe afterwards when she gets <laughs> she's healed has to be elated, has to be like in disbelief and you know, like rocking back and forth. Can I twist? Can, you know, what can my back do now that it hasn't been able to do for so long? And then Jesus immediately speaking to <laughs> you hypocrites. And it's like, oh, wow, this is getting, you know, this is getting a little intense all over what just happened to me. And then how that might have influenced even how the community saw her. Would they be jealous that, you know, maybe this happened, you know, to, to someone who, maybe didn't deserve it because they were a sinner. And who was this Jesus guy anyway, making a mockery of, you know, the the rules and of the of the of the ruling leaders. I also wonder how she felt about being an object lesson. Mm -hmm. mm. Her experience ended up being an object lesson. So sure she got Done. healed out of it, but she also had to suffer the attitude of people who didn't think she should be healed yeah. then, you know, and I, I wonder what kind of embarrassment or humili humiliation or shame might have come along with that situation and how that how that interacted with maybe the elation of being healed. Yeah. Yeah. You don't think about that from the standpoint of she's probably, oh, well, you don't know, but she probably didn't have a lot of resiliency type skills that she could immediately stand up straight and all of a sudden say, hey, I'm not worried about whether I'm a, you know, I'm an illustration for Jesus working on the Sabbath or not. I'm glad, you know, she, I don't know if she had that, but the, but the priests are like, like Ken mentioned in his sermon, they literally did not want to talk at all about whether or not she was healed. I'm sure they used her for illustrations as to, you know, family or personal <laughs> sins many times. And now yeah. they had to walk all that back and they weren't happy. And so they just kind of said, well, let's, uh, let's attack Jesus. But the woman, uh, you know, she's caught in the middle, much like uh, the blind, um, the blind man, 
yeah, who was caught in the middle of that. But I think Jesus, that's a good point, but I still think it was from compassion that he does this. So I think... Yeah, do you think that Jesus healed her in order for her yeah. to be an object lesson, or do you think he healed her because he had compassion on her? Honestly, I don't know. Yeah. yeah I'd like to I think it was compassion. Because, <laughs> I mean, well, here's the thing. How many other people were there that he could have healed where no one was watching it makes me think that perhaps he saw an opportunity not only to do this for her, but also to send this message to somebody else. And he was able to accomplish both with one hmm. event. The yes and healing. Maybe. <laughs> I like that. Oh, I mean, I mean. Well, it certainly obviously was perceived that way by the writers of the Gospels because that's how they do a lot of Jesus' miracles, especially when you mentioned John. John's are always too... Yeah, I always wonder that. what they're they, and they don't have the same, they don't have this, they didn't have the same sensibilities that we may have today, which is neither right nor wrong. It's just they had different sensibilities, different culture. But I do sometimes wonder if some of these people gave the writers permission to tell their stories because they were so grateful. <laughs> and I mean, like when I tell stories about my kids, I I always am asking, "Are you okay with me telling that story?" And they're like, "Yeah." I, I'm like, "Hey," because people, you know, no, no, that's tell the story. I, it makes a good point. Well, when by the time the gospels were actually written, there's a good chance that some of those people weren't even around anymore. So right. the stories have been told and retold and retold. So they may not have been there to give permission. Who knows? For that, yeah. Well, we have a long list of questions, so I don't want to go too much longer. But I also I, I didn't want to. Stop. I've got way more than I know we're going to cover. But I liked how, you know, the question is, is what I'm about to do life-giving and the loving thing to do as a little, you know, little checklist. But then the context matters. I thought maybe if there was any point that might be worth going over is, I mean, it seems like when you're talking about context, it's almost a free pass to be like, well, I mean, that's what the rules are. But I mean, if context matters, then let's, uh, you know, and, and we're going to use the two. I mean, is it life-giving and is it the loving thing to do? But we can talk ourselves. Yeah, a lot of people get afraid of this because it it, it lends towards the moral relativism. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, well, what's right for you is right for you. What's right for me is right for me. And if you heard that in the sermon, go back and listen to it again because <laughs> – because the point is that love is the moral. That is the moral. That is the, yeah. the, the being loving and giving life is what everything else is based off of. It's not so much moral relativism as it is use your brainism. That's the way I view it. <laughs> and, and the pro, and we well, but we get ourselves into so many problems when we make everything absolute. And and mm. you know, if I treat my, you know, I want to treat Eric, the same as I, you know, as I treat Kyla. Well, that's a problem because Kyla's got is a different human being than Eric is. And, you know, it used to drive me nuts when my parents would be like, well, we punish your brother differently than you because he's a different person. I'm like, eh, just, <laughs> just punish him, you know. But, but as, you know, now as a parent, I get it a lot more. It's like, yeah, that that is not effective on one child that's effective on the other. But I know what my ultimate outcome for both of my children is. I want them to grow up to be good people who are make a difference in the world they're in. And everything I'm doing is pointing towards that. that I'm trying to I want them to love God and I want them to be loving people. 
And so the way I go about doing things that may be different, but it's the same goal is the is the is the bottom line. And I believe that as God as a parent is trying to help us love people. And that's the point is what is the loving thing to do? What's what is the life giving thing to do? And that's not moral relativism. That's just applying the principle of of mm-hmm. what God's trying to do. That's not saying that, you know, do what you want to do. In fact, I think the loving thing to do is often the thing I don't want to do. The self-sacrificing thing, the the forgiveness, the things that I struggle and don't want to do. <laughs> the really hard, hard yeah. things, yeah. Although I do have to say that your sermon was used against me afterward in the oh, lobby. Oh, no. oh nice. Um, I don't know if it was used against me, but I had, after it, you know, it was Mother's Day. We gave out all these little, you know, Mother's Day treats to all the mothers. And um, at the end, I had a few left over, and I was kind of looking around to make sure that all, you know, all the women who were there received one. And a kid came up to me and asked me for one. And I said, well, you know, these are these are for the ladies in the congregation. And and uh, he wanted one for his mom. And the argument was used. Is this the life giving thing to do? Is this the living thing to do? (laughs) And he may or may not have walked away with a treat. I I couldn't say no to that one. (laughs) All I'll say is well done, young man. (laughs) But, you know, I actually had somebody come up to me and say something, too, that I thought I did not want to miss, and I don't know, this may or may not be in the questions, but I, I want to make sure we don't miss this. Somebody came up to me and expressed concern, and I really, what they said really resonated with me, and if I could go back and change one thing about my sermon, this is what I would change to be very clear about. And they said, Ken, what concerns me about your sermon is the the, is it life giving? Is it loving? Is the is what abusive people will often say to keep mm. people in abusive relationships? They'll say, "Oh, well, you need to be loving to me because you know, even though they're not being loving back, even though they're being cruel, and they're like, well, but what's the loving thing to do? You need to remember to forgive and not hold grudges, and you know, and how you know how dare you do that and and like I said, if I could add one thing into my sermon that wasn't there is that the, the, the caveat has to be in there that the other person is not taking away life and being an unloving in what they're doing because God has boundaries and we, we should have boundaries too. If you're being abused by somebody, you have every right to tell that person that until they, they are able to get the help that they need to that you don't need to be putting yourself in that position. And it is actually the loving thing to do, to do that for them, because abusive people are not happy. They they, they are There's trauma in their life that, that they need to work out. And the loving thing to do is to put a boundary that forces them to head in that direction. Well, and I don't know if you mentioned this in your sermon or if we just chatted about this throughout the week, but you mentioned something specific about this, this principle, this Jewish principle, that had to do with the innocent. Yeah. Um, are, you, are you talking about the Jewish, are, are we talking? That's imperative that you do it. Well, Is, the, is that it, what you're referring to? No, I'm, I'm referring to the idea that uh, if, if someone is an abusive person, they are not the innocent in the situation. Correct. Right? So, so what you are doing to that person that is inhibiting them from doing things that are not life-giving 
to other yeah. people. They're they're not the innocent in that situation. Well, I'll share one that's. Uh, I had this conversation with um, an an acquaintance of mine in Nashville who's a rabbi there, and he was presenting to a, a class that I taught. And I think that the class, I can't remember whether he voluntarily said this or whether the class asked him what the Jewish position was on abortion. And I really want to be careful to not misquote him because it was really brilliant, the things he said, and it was very interesting. But um, if I am recalling the first part of this correctly, and this is the part I might, is that the Jewish position is is that abortion should not happen, that, that it's not, they would encourage... Uh, members of their community not to to have abortions. But what I remember for vividly is that he told the class, however, if the baby is threatening the life of the mother, then not only should there be an abortion, there must be an abortion because it is the baby that is threatening the innocent life. It is basically the mother is trying to nurture life and and the baby is is threatening the life of the mother therefore in and keep this in, mind, in in a Jewish context the baby is becoming a murderer the baby is threatening life and therefore the baby is the one that that um, whose life would be forfeit in that position and I know that maybe you know some of you may listen to that and and struggle but it, it's an interesting thing because it it follows the principle that I was talking about in the sermon of of this life giving thing is it life giving or is it not? And and so, from that Jewish standpoint, whenever something's threatening life, that's the thing that's of concern, the thing that needs to be dealt with, the thing that needs to to be worked with. And again, it was just it was a fascinating thing to hear that rabbi talk about that because I'd never really heard that perspective on things before. I'd. You know, I've heard people say, well, of course, if a mother's life is being threatened, of course, then the baby. And I've heard people say, well, you know, you just need to let God figure that out, you know, whichever one, you know, if 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 both die, that was God's will. And if, if you know, the mom dies and that was God's will and the baby survives, that was God's will. Uh, the rabbi had, a, you know, the point that I shared with you and that he, he thought it was incumbent from a, a Jewish standpoint that that the life of the of the mother whose life giving be preserved in that case. I think it's important to to mention that just like there are different denominations within Christianity, yeah. there are different denominations within yes. Judaism and there are different denominations within Islam. So so I don't know if that's like the yeah. official Jewish sure. position or if that is the position of a of people who Yeah, who he was part of the conser- I think he was a conservative uh, orthodox. Yeah, he was orthodox, not ultra orthodox but orthodox. Hmm. Well, I like the th- the thought process process at least, and it gives some continuity to yeah. The there's idea. so many different. I, th- I mean, that was good in terms of life giving. With how far do you go down? Even with abuse, abusive sure. issues, dealing with uh, maybe it's not death, maybe it's quality of life, maybe it's uh, you know you can get into these ethical issues of how far do I go with this idea? Well, it's I'm becoming the, it's the abuser, and um, and I think these are good conversations, and I think these are the conversations that churches should be having, and I think not just churches but communities should be having because um, when it comes right down to it, you know the husband may not be threatening. The, 
the life of his wife, but the abuse that's going on only escalates. And we have to realize that, in, especially in a lot of our issues with mental health, it, it's we see that stair step of it's abuse. Escalates. Well, and you can I think be dead it, inside without being exactly. dead. And I think exactly. that it goes back to the sermon that I gave when I was doing the sermon on the Ten Commandments about thou shalt not murder. Mm, um, right. And mm-hmm. that murder goes, in my opinion, when you look at that text, it goes far beyond just physically killing somebody. That yeah. you can emotionally kill somebody. You can. There's a lot of ways to kill somebody that doesn't necessarily put them in a grave, but but that causes them in, immense yeah. um, suffering, and um, and that is that is taking away life. Hmm. I'm glad you mentioned that, and that was that fits in with what we're talking about seamlessly, really. So I will just like last week we put a a, a track back to Melanie's topic on um, sibling rivalry in the show notes. This week we'll put a we'll put a, a link back to that one. So if you want to investigate that a little bit more, I will put both the message from Speaking of Grace in the show notes and also that podcast episode. So you can just click to those really simply and easy if you have if you want to go and check that out if you've missed it or just want to refresh. All right, let's hit the questions. There was a ton, and I think maybe the most entertaining question, and I saw it happen. Well, let's in, do that one first. It, yeah, <laughs> it, it, I saw it happen in real time, and it just it just made me smile. It was from Aaron, and this was the teaser as well. He said, I just realized something last night. God killed to keep Adam and Eve from the elements when he provided the animal skins after they fell. And Stanley responded to it. Are you saying this is an example of a bad thing that God did for good people? And she's like, yeah, it's true. And she put a little la- a laughing emoji. I was wondering if that would fit because I never thought of God actually killing anything. But we don't think of killing animals for survival is a bad thing. So maybe it doesn't fit. So <laughs> what do you think? Does it fit that God – it doesn't say he explicitly killed something, but where did the animal skins come from? <laughs> He created oh, them. Yeah, you don't think God can create animal skins without animals? All right, Aaron, there's your answer. I'm sorry. I, I, I was on your side, honestly. We snuck so, around for it, a minute, I'll tell you yeah, that much. Yeah, we did. Well, it's an interesting thing that I mentioned Dennis Prager's book on Deuteronomy. And um, if you read through the book of Deuteronomy, it becomes pretty apparent to you pretty quickly that that human life from at least the book of Deuteronomy is on a different level than animal life as far as is worth goes that animal life is considered to be less than yeah. a human life and so it's one of the reasons why people eat meat um if you we don't and why we don't and you know we don't eat humans and so when god made those skins however he chose to make them one of the things that probably the writer of genesis was probably trying to to impress on the readers was that that death did follow Adam and Eve's, you know, when the when the serpent said you won't die, their death did that what they did did create death. There was immediate consequences not only to themselves but to the environment around them, and it's really a worthwhile thing for us to think about that that the the things that I do can create pain for others and suffering for others. And so I have a moral responsibility to be thinking not just about what's best for me, but what what preserves life and what what gives life hmm. and not just be focused on what's best for me. Yeah. 
Um, they didn't ask the other question, though. Four, four chapters later, he's wiping out everybody, including animals. Yeah, I was waiting for that one. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, she did continue. Uh, later on, Aaron, you were, di- you were the uh, superstar of the chat this week. What about Job, and she missed this one, offering his daughters to the men as a trade for them to leave the, the men or the angels alone? Was that bad or good of Job? And Stanley replied, I think you're thinking of Lot, which is an interesting example. And Stanley said, I'm not sure how the daughters felt about it, but Lot definitely valued messengers of God above his own family, apparently. Lot had some real interesting issues when it came to his daughters, yeah. by the way, can we yeah. just say? and. I think it's safe to say, in my opinion, firstly, there is no mention of God telling Lot <laughs> to to give his daughters mm-hmm. to the men of the of that of the, and I think it's safe to say that I think that the Bible actually pretty roundly c- criticizes Lot for the way that he behaved, and and what was going on there, and so I would say that is a situation of something, someone doing a bad thing, and it was a bad thing. It was a bad thing. It was not when a good thing becomes a no, 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 or not when a bad thing becomes a no. good thing. I, man, I was totally wrong on that. <laughs> Crank, <laughs> back. Don't even listen to that. Just hit your bra- Just hit ahead fifteen seconds, and we'll, we'll totally act like that just never happened. The next one was from Jan, who asked, "How many times can someone make the same mistakes knowingly?" And still expect to be forgiven. That's my question. Zero. Another one word sermon. Okay. <laughs> I don't, I don't, th- I think that's a really important thing for us to think about. I may have an obligation to forgive as a Christian, but a person who's continually, intentionally doing harmful things has no right to expect forgiveness or to demand it or to demand that things and that that goes back to what we were talking about before we see abusive people who mm-hmm. love to use Christianity as, well you've got to forgive me and of course we believe what Christ said that we need to forgive but I think it's incredibly arrogant and narcissistic to think that you can be abusive to people and they owe it to you to forgive you that that's not they don't owe it to you that's grace if they do it and i think that i see too many times where i see um people who perpetrate pain and harm on another demand that that person forgive on their schedule and on and, and i don't think it's up to the perpetrator to dictate to the victim when and how they have to forgive. Yeah, that's I, just mine. Yeah, I, I don't, I don't want to say that we we shouldn't have a forgiving heart. I think we should always have a forgiving heart. I think that's a good lesson. But I, I think what maybe the question they're saying is condoning the action because I don't think any of us should condone somebody's intentional abuse of us. Yeah, I think the part where she says knowingly, I think that how many says, well, but read the question one more yeah. time because I, I want okay. I, I there's how it was written and then there's maybe how it was meant. Yeah. But okay. go ahead and read how it was written. How many times can someone make the same mistakes, plural, knowingly, and still expect to be forgiven? That's an interesting so, way of saying it. Some but that's ahead. that's the thing. How many times can they expect? And that's why I say zero 
as oh, they well. they don't they don't have an expectation that they should be forgiven. Now, if you're asking how many times should can somebody do that to me and I need to forgive, that's a different question. Well, the, it goes back to God though. We make mistakes every single yeah. stinking day. And it, and we are forgiven, and <laughs> but we're that's not. the relationship that we're in. Unfortunately, we're not God on the. And we we're probably not yeah. as good as God on the. No, we're end. not. <laughs> but again, I think it goes to the fact that we we do mix up, and I, I'm not. This is the point I'm trying to yeah. make. I'm not saying I'm disagreeing. I'm saying we mix up the idea that forgiveness means condoning, or forgiveness means accepting that. As appropriate behavior, but like, that's part of the forgiveness, isn't it? Isn't if if you're forgiving someone and saying that, look, I'm forgiving. I mean, for me and my mental wealth, mm-hmm. or my mental health, and my mental well being, and being a believer in Christ, I feel like I have to forgive you for me. Right. I don't have right. to forgive you for it'll, you. It'll be worse for you if you don't do it for— Right, yeah, because yeah. then I'm carrying the load of what you've done to me, plus I'm, and when I could have forgiven it and, and and moved it off. But that also doesn't mean that you get to keep doing it to me. Exactly. You, like, you need exactly. to—okay, now we're our friendship until you are ready to own up to what you've done and this consistent behavior, then— you need to leave me alone. And that's the parameters with which we're working in. Not that we don't have to be like, if we were friends and something came between us, we're not going to hang out anymore. We're not going to go do whatever we used to do. And it's not going to be hunky dory until I know that you're serious, that you take my forgiveness, not as like you said, a A blank check. Here you go. Now you can beat me up again. But as I'm forgiving you, because this is for me. No, that's a good point. Good. Oh, I was just going to say, I don't think that forgiveness is condoning because the very act of forgiveness is acknowledging that you did yeah. something wrong. Right. And I am forgiving you for the thing that you did wrong. So I don't I don't know that condoning. But, but I don't, I don't, but but I don't, I don't think, think the abuser takes it that way, though. I don't think, though, that somebody – so <laughs> to go a little further, because I can, I can feel people like being really upset that I said zero times, <laughs> when Jesus clearly said 70 times seven – and here's what I'd say. As a Christian, I have an obligation to forgive as I've been forgiven. And I don't and that doesn't mean that if Melanie does something awful to me that she has to ask me for forgiveness. In fact, I, I owe the forgiveness whether she asks or changes or doesn't change, doesn't matter. I have to forgive. But where we get confused as Christians is that is that forgiveness is somehow the same as restoration of relationship, and that's mm-hmm. not right. what forgiveness is. Forgiveness doesn't mean that the restoration that the that the that everything goes back to normal, and that I just have to go ahead and put up with Melanie slamming my head into the door every time that I walk into her office. I don't. That's not forgiveness. Is giving up the right to get even. Yeah. To me that's what it is. It's me letting go of my right you know to to get even or to get ahead. And and so for me that that's and and I also just would think for me forgiveness isn't always something that just that just wells out of you after you've been hurt deeply. It's sometimes something that you it takes a process and takes time to work your way through. And and so that's what I I guess that's where I'm it's such a difficult topic. Yeah, and I don't want people who are, you know, there's going to be some people who are listening who have, you know, suffered 
a great deal of abuse maybe in their lives. And for us to cavalierly just say, you know, you need to forgive them. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it, that's, that's a really hard thing sometimes yeah. to do, even when we do separate it from condoning. Yeah, you can't. You you can only forgive yeah. to the degree that you understand how much you've been hurt. Exactly. If you forgive superficially, the wound stays there and and just continues to fester. And so forgiveness might not come all at once. It might. You might actually have to re-forgive it might someone. Be you years. realize yeah. when you realize. Oh, wait a minute. That that wound is is still there and it's deeper than I thought it was. So now I've got to clean all that out and see, you know, what forgiveness looks like for that. I think we we tell people you need to forgive and it's kind of like, all right, I forgive forgive first and there yeah. there it is. But forgiveness is a process. And yeah. it's more for you than it is for anybody else and it can happen regardless of whether or not the other person repents. Mm. Oh, it has to, yeah. Or but, even accepts. Or yeah. even accepts. And I don't yeah. know that you necessarily have to give someone, uh, you know, that that absolution that that um, yeah. that makes them feel, you know, psychologically restored, especially if it's someone who is an abuser. Yeah. But I do, I, I agree with you, Ken, from the standpoint of that piece is not restoration of the relationship, but it may be the first step if restoration even is possible of the relationship. Yeah. A long time ago, over 20 years ago, I think it's at least been over 20 years since I've read a book by Dick Tibbetts, Forgive to Live. And it's a, if you're, I mean, if you're not really, haven't really thought about it, but you know, you need to forgive and you're not really sure how that works. And it may not be an answer all for everything, but it's a place to start. It's something you can write notes in. It's a book I've read probably, I think I've read it three times now. You know, we have, a, we have a couple of those books here in the church because, um, do we really? <laughs> we have, uh, a good friend who is, um, who had a whole bunch of uh, of them in a warehouse from the yeah, and so um, well, from the publishing and and, and I don't yeah. know. I, I'm trying to debate whether I'm allowed to call him out by name, but thank you, Todd. Todd, <laughs> thanks, um, Todd. Um, so oh, from publishing, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so anyway, so we're actually probably going to be um, working through that book next year. Yeah, I think okay. that's on our church's reading list. Well, I know I've, I've referenced this in the past, and so there is a link already. But I'll make sure it gets included in the show notes because I have noticed it is one of the links that people have clicked on a ton of times out of our show yeah. notes, and it'll just take you to Amazon to find the book. Or if there, if we have some here, or if you hold us. on, we'll uh, you might be able to get a free one. Yeah. But it, but it was something that really changed my life about not taking and holding on to past grievances and just realizing that it was really more for me than them. We can sort the other details out as we go. Like Melanie said, it may take a long time. But knowing that that's part of what I need to do, to me, it makes the process start earlier than just holding on to it and going, well, yeah, I suppose I'm supposed to forgive this person, aren't I, after six months or a year. If you're starting that process and you're working through it through prayer and through your daily worship and, and, and just talking to God about it, I think it, I think it breaks down those barriers on your side faster that way than to let it fester and that seems like the to me it seems like the hole's a little bit deeper to dig out of if you don't actually understand that like what the benefits are to you and why maybe starting earlier than later is better you know i don't know maybe this hasn't but i i think of it this way when i was a kid um i always had to do exactly what my parents told me immediately there was no like standing around. There was no arguing. However, there was a loophole. Ooh, as long as I was moving in the direction to do what I was told, I could make a case mm. for why I thought why? Yeah. something should be different. 
Um, and I wonder, I, I know this is kind of a stretch, but I wonder if, if in our relationship with God, if we say, God, I can't forgive this person, but I am oriented in the direction of forgiveness mm -hmm. yeah. and I will let you do what, what there is to do. And it can take time as long as you're oriented in that direction. Yeah. 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 Well, I agree. I like that. Okay. We are just about to the end of the questions. This one was from Chad and man, it was good to see Chad in the, in the chat, in Chad in the chat, <laughs> Chad in the chat. Easy for me to say chat in the chat. Oh, wow. I think he has a new, uh, the social media name. Chad, in the, chat in, the chat. <laughs> Chad in the chat. Love you, Chad. As I read through the life of Jesus, he seems far more concerned about a person's heart than comparing their actions to a list of approved good things to do. He even says that good things done for wrong reasons is not acceptable. Perhaps we are too focused on the wrong things. Man looks at the outside appearance and actions, but God looks at the heart. I thought that was a good comment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. me yep. too. Good. I think he I was concur. Right. ends us well. I think it was right on point. And then there were multiple people all the way through the message, comments like, oh, this sermon is talking to me. <laughs> Amen. Me too. And so I think that, you know, we've hit on these great questions. And well, no doubt that it's because they're questions from those uh from people that attend whole life and online and or in you know in person each week, and that these these messages are really striking a chord. And and finally, there was just, and this is more of just a, a comment, you know, why is loving thy neighbor so hard for us humans? Anonymous wanted to know. And Anne said, because we don't really like the way they live or believe. And Stanley said, that is the question. I want to believe that if everyone put everyone else first, then it wouldn't be so hard to love your neighbor. There you go, Stanley. Good job. Good point. Stanley does such a good job in the chat. Isn't he a good host? Yeah. You know, good, good he, moderator. He's a, he's got he's got it all. He's got the host. He's got the moderator. And every so often, I like to jump in and and uh, play along <laughs> with them. But uh, this week, I was too busy, and they were just killing it. And so, thank you, everyone, for the questions. I think that the, again, there'll be those items in the show notes if you want to go a little bit deeper. And you know, if you have a question, something that you know we could have said, should have said, four zero seven nine six five one six zero seven or podcast at wholelife.church. And as already mentioned, John Monday will be preaching and his question, oh yeah, here it is. All right. Do our words contain divine power? Can our words call forth divine power? How do we get that power? Man, he got three in one. Mm. That's a, that's <laughs> a tall whammy. order. I know. <laughs> so the trifecta. But yeah, so the hat trick for Mr. Monday. So we will be praying for him this week as he continues <laughs> yeah. to work into Friday. Allegedly, he's already started, according to Ken, but I don't know. Oh, oh he's on it. You think he's on it? Oh, yeah, I know I he's on it. I think you better it. be on it because three questions is a lot to take <laughs> all at once. So. Anyway, thank you guys so much. Someone else had mentioned that we had a few audio issues in the past week, and so I am working on those. But thank you for pointing them out because I don't usually listen to the podcast. When it sounds good in the editor, I'm like, all right, we're good to go. And so I count on, you know, I count on some other people because I'm not only here, then I edit it. And then I put it out. So that would be the third time through for me. So Good you know, thing you got such smart people you're working with that are so interesting to listen to. I, that's time, what I'm right? saying, that we got people that are, are willing to just be like, hey, that wasn't the best effort ever. Well, hopefully we get that uh, cleared up. But also, we hit our fourth month in a row of over 1,500 listens a wow. month. So we have – you guys are awesome sharing the show and, and listening. And, yes, and, thank uh, you. Thank you so yeah. much for that. It just uh, 
we've uh, we've really appreciated all of your efforts. So that's going to do it for this week. Next week, John Monday will be here. I'm super, well, Tuesday, but then Wednesday for you, John Monday will be here. Yeah. And that's going to do it. Anyone else got anything else? That's all, so. folks. And he is? I am. Ken Wetmore. Have a great week, everyone. <laughs> <laughs> Ha <laughs> <laughs>